Hello and welcome to episode number nine of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Maddie Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat with public speaker and cancer survivor, Jake Bailey. Here we go. Thanks so much for checking out another episode of the Road to Success podcast. I appreciate each and every single one of you for tuning in uh, today as I catch up with Jake Bailey. Now, Jake was the inspirational young man behind the viral speech that gathered tens of millions of views. Now, he uh, was diagnosed with cancer at 18 years old and given two weeks left to live. He was the head boy at Christchurch Boys High School and uh, through his treatment managed to show up and make his end of year prize giving speech. It went absolutely viral, and uh, since then he's made a career out of um, you know sharing his story, inspiring people, sharing the insight that he's gained through the journeys he's had, which is absolutely remarkable. I chat with him about everything from before cancer, during cancer, after cancer. We talk about some of the things that he's learned. We talk about some of his approaches and his mindset to life and the way he sees the world now is magnificent, and I think there's lessons in that for all of us. He's a remarkable young guy. He's tackled an amazing amount of adversity, particularly for someone his age, and there's a lot to learn from him. So I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Jake, how are you, man? Good, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time. Got to see you speak last night. That's a powerful story. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it, it's to me, it's it's my story, and I just feel yeah really lucky that I've been able to share it. And I guess I'm really humbled by the fact that a lot of other people have taken away some positivity or some lessons from it. And it's a real privilege for me to be able to share it. But thank you. You know, there's people in the audience that are crying as you're talking, and there's <laughs> um you know there's uh, afterwards you were nearly mobbed. It's more people you know were sort of there. People were trying to tell you about their experiences and what your stories meant to them. Your story just seems to sort of hit a note with people, I guess. Yeah, it, it does. And I think, um, I mean, cancer touches the lives of, of everyone really at some point. And so it's just, it's a relatable story, I think, to a lot of people. And I think people really draw on that because like you said, everyone kind of comes over and talks about their own experiences with it. And it's incredibly humbling because you've just met these people and they feel so comfortable coming up and kind of opening up to you about the darkest or the most difficult things within their life. And and that's a really powerful thing. I, re- I really enjoy being able to, to sort of share that with people. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. So let's sort of go back to the story and, and start at the start. So let's start with life before cancer yeah. you know, for you. What was that like? What were you doing? <laughs> it was fun. It was um, life of a typical 18-year-old guy, I suppose. So I was in my final year of high school. I was head boy at Christchurch Boys High School. I was uh, partying. I was playing sport. I was doing exams. I had a girlfriend. I was getting ready to go away to university in Auckland the following year. And it's that final year of, of school, which I think for most people, and then myself included, it's kind of the whole world of adult fun without any of the adult responsibilities. So yeah. I think I was just, yeah, and making the most of it and really enjoying spending some time with, with these people before I moved away to uni and, and life changed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty typical of a, any sort of Kiwi yeah. high school student in their last <laughs> yeah. year of high school, but, but obviously it changed for you in yep. the last year. Tell us about that. So it got to about September and my wisdom teeth had been coming through and, and they were hurting, which is pretty typical for wisdom teeth. Eventually the pain sort of got worse and worse and I'd broken bones playing sport before but this pain was got to a level where it was worse than that and it was coming on for sort of an hour a day and the the pain was unbelievable so I ended up going to my dentist and my dentist took an x-ray of my jaw and he said that there was a dark mark on one side he said it wasn't an infection of any kind it wasn't a cyst or an abscess but he wasn't exactly sure what it was so he referred me to a maxillofacial surgeon to have the teeth removed and and I got kind of fobbed off a little bit for that appointment because there was a shortage of the MaxFax surgeons in Christchurch and, and in New Zealand. So the appointment wasn't meant to be until the following year. I think it was early January the following year. Um, well, I might have had a consultation in there maybe, but the teeth weren't meant to be taken out for another few months. So sent home to wait really. 
and things just kind of deteriorated over a period of weeks and I lost a heap of weight. I lost probably 12 kgs within about 10 days or two weeks and uh, lost the feeling in the bottom half of my face and, and my face just went numb from what turned out to be the tumours compressing the nerves which supply sensation to the lower half of the face and just yeah, really incredibly ill um, and unwell and bedridden and uh, really, yeah. What was going through your head then? Did you feel like this could be something serious or you just think, oh, I'm unwell, this is odd? Yeah, it was the, the issue, I suppose, for the doctors and the dentists and the surgeons we were dealing with was that there was always a plausible explanation in, in terms of the fact that wisdom teeth get impacted, they get infected, there are, there are complications associated with them quite frequently. And so because of that, it wasn't necessarily raising alarm bells. And I guess it was the same for me as well. I wasn't panicked or worried necessarily about it. I just, you know, I was suffering and I knew that, but it was just to do with my wisdom teeth and eventually once we sort of fought our way through the system I'd have these teeth removed and I'd get back to 100% in time for my end of year exams but as things progressed that that wasn't how it turned out. Yeah so keep going from there so you were you're unwell you were starting to notice all the stuff did they did they move? Yeah there was a lot of kind of bouncing around we were dealing with the hospital and and a private maxillofacial surgeon and a public hospital one and two different dentists and a doctor and there was a few visits to the hospital where I was sort of assessed and discharged and then eventually it was one afternoon I had an appointment in the morning with the public max fax surgeon and then an, another one in the afternoon with a private one and, and the private maxillofacial surgeon ended up just basically throwing in the towel and just said like you need to go to A&E and really be admitted to hospital now because there's something something's wrong something's going on which shouldn't be happening so I went back through to A&E at the hospital, was admitted to a ward called AMAR, which is the Acute Medical Assessment Unit at Christchurch Hospital, and they began to do a series of tests and procedures at this point to, to try and determine what was wrong. And just to kind of revert back to your question there about what, what did I think was going on, uh, at this point I had this concept that I might have picked something up as a bloodborne illness because I'd been working in a bar that year and I remembered cutting my hand on the lip of a glass when I'd been, I was, I was a glassy part-time there as well and um, sort of wondered whether maybe I'd, I'd, I knew it was serious at that point but I just, it, it baffled me what it could possibly be or how I could have picked this up. So I don't know, that specifically came to mind, I'm not really sure why. And yeah, in the ward they, they ran a bunch of tests over a period of about a week, I think it was, between my uh, admission and my diagnosis. And there was CT scan, MRI scan, PET scan, ultrasound, gum biopsy, kidney biopsy, bone marrow aspirate, and a spinal tap. And the culmination of that was when um, a doctor came into my room one afternoon and, and explained to me that I had uh, cancer, that I had a type of cancer called Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yeah, it really progressed from there fairly rapidly. So you're, you're by yourself or you have some, your parents are with you? Um, I had, uh, it's actually quite blurry for me and, and I don't know if I can, rem I'm trying to remember what my mum has told me of it. I remember being told myself, but there was an order in, of which perhaps our family was told together and then they were asked to leave while the doctor uh, went into a few more details with me or maybe it was vice versa. It was, there was a bit of a complication around that because I was still very much under my parents' care at yeah. the time, but I was was over 18 years old, which, yeah. which makes me an adult. And so the, even throughout their process, there was a whole lot of <laughs> technicalities about, you know, who could yeah. be there and, yeah, yeah. And, and who was in charge of my yeah. treatment. And what's that like when someone tells you that? Um, not what anyone seems to expect, I think. Um, there was none of the, the typical emotions you might associate with a diagnosis like that of, I guess, fear or anger or sadness or, or any of these negative emotions. I think for me, there was really just a lack of emotion. It was numb. And if anything, probably what I remember most was a sense that this was the situation I'd found myself in and that from there, there was nothing really else that I could do apart from just to get through it, to get through to the other side. So I, I really ought to begin as soon as possible. Yeah, totally. And then, so you begin treatment as the plan from there. And so you, mm. you move into a different part of the hospital? Or? Yep, moved to a ward called the Bone Marrow Transplant Unit and began my treatment there 
yeah, very shortly afterwards, things moved incredibly quickly because my cancer was the fastest growing cancer known to man. Uh, the tumors double in size every 24 to 48 hours. So I had about two weeks to live without treatment at that point. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was interesting because it, it certainly put me at a pretty uh, profound level of risk with treatment. Treatments don't always work when it comes to, to chemotherapy, and there is backup treatments, but the, the doctors usually give an initial treatment about two weeks before they make a call on, on whether it's working or not and whether to switch. And so obviously in, in my case, if the initial treatment hadn't have worked, there wasn't really time for a, a plan B as such. So um, it was a matter of yeah rushing through and, and hoping for the best. And the treatment itself was called salvage protocol, which I quite like because it sort of gives a, a pretty good indication of, of where the mindset of the what medical professionals do, yeah. is at, at that point. Just, yeah, let's take what we can and, and yeah, see yeah. how it goes. Yeah, totally. So you're in, and how long you, were you in there for? So I went into that ward. I went into my room. I was in that isolation room for the next 52 days, and I left that room and left the hospital only once to make my, my interview speech at Christchurch Boys High as head boy. And I spent three months all up having treatment and, and outside of that 52 days afterwards I was an outpatient and an inpatient at various times I sort of dabbled in there and then ended up spending some time back in the ward after my treatment was completed as well so we don't actually have a count of how many nights I spent at hospital but it would have been Heaps. a few months yeah. yeah wow that's amazing and then obviously the treatment worked was yes. The main thing. So yep. treatment work. The, yep. the cancer goes into remission. Mm. Is that the right term? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Goes, remission. Goes yeah. Into, and how long? When did you find out that? So remission was the 29th of January 2016, which was three months to the day since I'd been diagnosed. So it was a pretty rapid. Um, what a crazy three months. Yeah, I know. I know. And it was incredibly. It was a crazy three months and very kind of fast paced and, and unexpected and certainly a roller coaster ride. But I was incredibly fortunate in that I met people along the way. I met 10 year old kids that have four years of chemotherapy ahead of them so yeah three months was, was yeah. a real blessing to be in and out like that because a lot of people have cancer linger in their lives or they fight it for years and, and sometimes in over a decade and um, I was yeah very fortunate to be in and out like I was yeah let's talk about that speech so you're you're literally I didn't realize that you were leaving hospital to make the speech you know like yeah, I yeah. like tens of millions of people have seen the speech yeah tell me about it like you had written it beforehand you <laughs> obviously had to adapt it a little bit you yeah, thought you I were going to make it you weren't going to make it yeah I um I'd written it beforehand it was all pre-prepared and yeah you, you bang on I was and, and wasn't going to make it medically I was allowed to leave the hospital, that was fine. It wasn't as, I think it was like a Unilad article noted that I could have dropped dead on stage at some point or so. <laughs> they, 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 they like the media to Yeah, it's unlike them to, yeah. <laughs> to, to blow something completely out of proportion and make it untruthful. I, I was, yeah, medically fine to leave the hospital and, and unlikely to die on stage. Um, <laughs> and so it was just really came down to whether I was physically capable of, of doing it or not. Mm -hmm. And in the days leading up, I was very set on it. Sort of profoundly discovered a text message from one of my deputies since then in my phone asking whether I was going to make it a few days out. And I said something along the lines of, yeah, there's, you know, there's nothing they can do to stop me. Even if they have to wheel me out there in a wheelchair, I'll, I'll make it. And that was sort of more as a metaphorically speaking than anything, but it actually did end up very much being in a wheelchair. I was very set on going, and then as the day arrived, I began to understand the limitations of, of my body at the time a lot more. And I hadn't shaved for about three weeks at that time. And, and I knew I had to, you know, shave before I went to my school prize giving because I was head boy and, and I wanted to set a, a good standard or a good image, which was, you know, repeatedly stressed to me by the, the headmaster and by my family that, that I, there was no need for that. But I, I certainly felt there was. And as I was shaving in, in the bathroom in my room, I had to stop because I was so physically exhausted and then sitting down, I started to to vomit because I was just so. And it's the same feeling I get now with endurance sport. If you if you really kind of overcook yourself in in a session, it's that same just exhaustion, and your your body just can't handle it. So I um, started to vomit and and took a break and and got back up and. 
Actually, I should note, in, in between that, those two points, one of the nurses who was on the shift by the name of Georgia came into the room and she said, are you going to do the speech? And I said, like, no, I, I, I can't do it. I can't go. It's not physically possible. And the words that she said to me were, I remember them so clearly. She said, that's fine, but I just don't want you to regret it. And so I thought, okay, and she left and I thought, well, I'll have another crack and I finished shaving and I started to put my school uniform on and again, I was just overwhelmed by the, I was incapable of dressing myself, I, I didn't have the energy or the strength and was overcome by this nausea and started vomiting again. And again, I just said, well, you know, I, I can't do it. And Georgia came back into the room and she said, are you, you going to do it? And I said, no, I, I can't do it, I can't get dressed now. And again, she said, that's fine. I just don't want you to regret it. And she left and I said, damn it, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was so funny. I think words I said, you know, fuck it, let's do this or something along those lines and um, finished getting dressed. Uh, they brought the wheelchair around and, and I hopped into the wheelchair. I gave Georgia a big hug and they wheeled me out of the hospital to dad's car where they were waiting and I in the car I was so unwell yeah. like I even in the car I was laying down and like sprawled out across both the back seats of the car I couldn't belt myself in I couldn't sit up I couldn't physically couldn't hold myself sitting up I just remember laying there just out of it and just yes the worst I felt in my life and Got to the auditorium. It was actually at Burnside High. People assume it was at Boys High, but our hall was still out of action from the earthquake, and uh, my family were all there waiting. It was, was a, not a particularly cold night. It was about this time of year, and it was probably pretty much like it is outside now, actually, a little bit sunny, a little bit overcast, and just kind of mild, and I was shivering uncontrollably, shaking violently, and... My family wheeled me into the auditorium and I was started throwing up again just from being so shattered and I got wheeled onto the wings of the, the stage and before the speech and the lead up to it, we were sort of assessing different ways that we could do this. I could go and do the speech or you know perhaps I could go, but if I couldn't finish the speech, then my headmaster would be able to do it or maybe I just wanted to be there while the speech was read and... I was waiting on the wings and the headmaster announced to the school that I was there and it's the start of the clip for those who've seen it and there's a round of applause and as that round of applause happened, I faltered, I broke and my dad who was standing there to wheel me on stage, he was there and I said, Dad, I can't do this, I, I can't do the speech, I want to be wheeled out onto stage and I want the headmaster Nick Hill to read the speech uh, for me just with me there on the stage. And just as I said that, there was this round of applause that drowned me out and Dad crouched down beside me and said, you'll be great, and wheeled me out onto the stage. And I just thought, well, you know, I guess uh, <laughs> I guess I'm doing it now then. Serendipitous Shit. almost, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a, a series of uh, fortunate events from beginning to end in terms of Georgia and, and that occurrence there and, and the incredible people that supported me to be there. Yeah, and that speech changed your life probably, wouldn't it? Would you say that? Oh, without a doubt. certainly set me on a path to where I am now, which I never would have foreseen or I think would have been impossible to predict. And, yeah, I'm really grateful for that because I obviously would have had the same suffering and the same story either way. But I think uh, having gone through this has given me the opportunity to use that a lot more positively and beneficially. It's given me a platform from which to try and help other people. And I'm really grateful for that above everything else. Yeah, totally. I think one of the ways that you help people is one of the things that I notice is how openly you talk about it. Like, there's quite a, a stigma with cancer, you know? Yeah, like, even yeah. when I was, you know, preparing to chat with you, I was sort of like, you know, like, how do I talk to him about it? But the way <laughs> after seeing you yeah, last night, yeah. you're so open about it. And I think that's probably such a refreshing thing to see because <laughs> there is a bit of a stigma around the disease and it is yeah. so common and, and people are often sometimes even scared to talk about yep, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I've got to be so open 
about it and that's why I'm probably a little bit too open about it a lot of the time and not flippant with it, but uh, I do deliberately take it lightly because other people take it so seriously. Yeah. And there's nothing worse for me than a life where I'm trying to share a story or share teachings based on cancer and everyone's deadly serious about yeah. it. I mean, just laugh yeah. at my cancer jokes and, and we'll get on really well. And uh, yeah, yeah. it doesn't need to be taken that way. I mean, yeah. the stigma is with the disease and unfortunately the stigma is therefore attached or transferred onto the patients um, and it's not an intentional thing it, it suppose it ties in with the, the sympathy that, that people give them but really it borders on pity a lot more of the time and it, it's a very uncomfortable sensation as as a patient as well yeah I can imagine yeah. It's, just, it's just so common like it, it is so it, common, it's going to yeah. affect everyone's life it's, yeah. so I read a note someone wrote about it once it was like it would be like if we were that pent up and stressed about stubbing our toes like it's virtually as common as stubbing your toe it'd be like if we lived in fear of stubbing our toes or lived in fear of conversation about getting a paper cut like we we can't talk about that because that's a terrible thing but it shouldn't be that way yeah and i think like i said the way you're so open about i think is what draws so much attention and why those people sort of flock to you after your talks to to chat with you and, and share their stories with you one of the things i'm i'm pretty curious to talk about is your mindset and you certainly have a very sort of stoic approach to life and is that something that you've always had or sort of developed as a result of this probably something which i've always had which perhaps was expanded by the experience with cancer Looking back, I think one of the first kind of introductions to that mindset I had would have come from my grandmother. My grandmother's was a massive influence um, or has been a massive influence on who I am and, and my life just because she was such an incredible, incredible woman who taught me a massive amount. And, and one of her quotes, I suppose, which has really stuck with me and something which I probably leaned into a little bit throughout my treatment was, is it as bad as Auschwitz? And that was a phrase that that her family grew up kind of bouncing around a little bit. They grew up poor and they grew up in, in very tough times. And whenever they were facing adversity, the litmus test was, is it as bad as Auschwitz? And time and time again, the answer is always no. Mm. And uh, it was certainly something which I applied, you know, is my cancer, is my situation as bad as Auschwitz? Of course not. And I've, yeah, certainly relied on that at times and I've encouraged other people to try and use it. You've got to be careful when you do that because it's too closely related to what psychologists refer to as the African children's theory, which is, you know, the kids in Africa have it bad, so, you know, what are you complaining about? Mm. And and that's not really what that mindset is to me. It's not about other people's suffering minimising yours because that's a logical fallacy. That's not how how suffering adversity works. The worst adversity that you've faced is the worst adversity that you've faced, and then it feels the same to everyone. So... What I try and teach people is the concept of taking the suffering of others and using that to show you strength. And for me, it was in the ward, looking around and and finding someone who has it worse than you do. And in that ward, it's a pretty easy thing to do, right? So the guy in the room next to me had brain cancer. He had a hole drilled through his skull to his brain and the doctors would put chemotherapy directly onto his brain every day. And when I I was having a bad day or when I was feeling it at a pretty low point, I would think to myself, this guy is uh, in this situation, which is just, it's worse than mine if you look at it from an outside perspective and he's getting through. So therefore, if he's just as human as I am, then I've got to have some kind of strength within me that is still in there somewhere. I need to find that to help pull me through. And so that's what the stoic mindset is to me as well, is not just minimizing your suffering but drawing strength from other people who have gone through great suffering and adversity yeah it's certainly a um an interesting insight i think that um you know you're kind of talking about perspective as well it does give you a bit of perspective when you see when you talk about something like auschwitz or you know comparing yourself to someone else and it gives you a bit of perspective about you know your own situation but also i think that your own internal strength can grow from seeing someone else be strong which is probably what you saw in the ward yeah like absolutely absolutely there's always someone doing it tougher and it's uh inspiring yeah i can imagine did you ever think you might die No, no, I didn't. And I I suppose I'm really grateful for that in retrospect. And I find it funnier and funnier as as time goes on and I get more and more of an understanding of how close I did come to dying. And I was, you know, tapped on the shoulder by death 
at least a couple of times throughout that process and it got close. But uh, it's entertaining for me now looking back and seeing what a, and I think a lot of people do this as they grow up, but they look back and you know, I was such an oblivious teenager, a naive teenager. And that's really what it was for me. I think I was just a naive teenager who had no comprehension or maybe a complete physical inability to comprehend my own mortality. That's an issue which all teenage guys face. We're all 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Mm. And so it doesn't really surprise me necessarily that I never thought I was going to die, but it probably made the experience a lot easier as well because it was always a matter of just get through this and and continue on with life. And it Mm. was a, was an inconvenience which kept me in hospital for a few months, but it was, it was going to be fine. Yeah, wow, that's a powerful way to put it. I, I think mindset is so important, and I, that, you know, that's why I asked that question because I think that I don't want to seem insensitive or ignorant by any means, but with everything, the mindset you take into it is has to play a role in how you approach it. You know, yeah. and I think in something like this, if if someone goes into a battle with something like cancer with the mindset that this is it, like it's going to be really hard oh, for yeah. you to conquer yeah, it. Absolutely, and I think that probably. Yeah, I know I've experienced a lot of people that have talked about their mindset going through the disease as well, and it certainly has a, a profound impact. I'm not sure whether it has more of an impact, a negative impact if you're negative, or whether it has more of a positive impact if you're positive. I'm not sure whether leaning one way is, is more influential in, in an outcome uh, than leaning the other way, but it certainly has a, a pretty powerful impact in some regard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In your book, you've got a whole chapter called Thank You Cancer, which <laughs> yeah. I think was, you know, I was surprised to see it, if anything. But, you know, do you look back now and think that everything you went through has put you to exactly where you need to be now? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. And as I note to people, because people you know, fairly regularly ask, would you change it for anything? Would you do it again if if you had to and I absolutely would I wouldn't change it for the world I would go through it all again for the same outcome because the, the, what it has taught me in regards to just outlook on life perspective gratitude mindset these things are invaluable to me and I probably it's been a method of expediting learnings which I probably would have had at some point in life anyway but I feel like Picking them up when I was 18 has set me up to have a far more enjoyable next 60 years or so. You grew up pretty quick in three months, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was uh, a really uh, interesting experience, I suppose, from that perspective as well. It was certainly a, an end of a period of life. It was certainly the end of my, my teenage naivety or yeah. that carefree period of life, yeah. but but I don't have an issue with that at all. I don't don't long for it or miss it. I'm yeah. just grateful that I had that time and uh, grateful now that I'm, I'm in a different stage of life. Yeah, yeah. Steve Jobs had a great quote, and that was, he said, trust the dots, and he said the dots are events in our lives, and he said at the time they never seemed to make sense because he got fired from yeah, Apple, you know, and yeah. he said, but when you look back, you realise that all those dots have got you to exactly where you're meant Legend to be. Oh, that's incredible. And I think it's quite a nice trust insight. The dots. And, uh, trust the dots, yeah. And so that's what, you know, my accident and injury was nothing compared to what you went through, but that's how I sort of feel about it is that, you know, you sort of look back and, and think, that you know, if I hadn't have happened what happened to me, it's like I certainly wouldn't have the relationship I have now. I, pr- I definitely wouldn't have a podcast or do any mm. of the speaking or anything mm. like that. You know, so it's all sort Absolutely. of unfolded because of that. And yeah. you think, God, if that hadn't have happened, then there's no my life would be totally yeah. different. So I, I like the idea of trust the dots. And when I think it's powerful, as if you can actually use it in the present as mm. well. If you rather you go, oh, well, I look back on an event four or five or six or seven or ten years ago and say, oh, I'm glad that happened to me. It's if you can look upon an event that's happening to you right now that maybe doesn't necessarily have an immediate or it's got an immediate negative impact and you can think, I trust this is going to yeah. lead me in the right direction. Absolutely. Do you approach things like that now? Like, Yeah, I, I think that there is a power and a certain, I guess, stillness and calmness within that comes from the ability to see events going on around you or happening to you that you're not necessarily all that thrilled with or don't see positively, but to be able to continue to move forward without them negatively affecting you and, and, and just to keep powering through. Yeah, I think it's a, if you can, you know, say if you miss out on a job or you fail an exam or you um, make a mistake at work or, or whatever it is, I think that if you can go, hey, well, I've got to trust the process, then, you know, it gives you a lot more of a, I don't know whether it makes you happier. Or it, I guess it's stoicism eventually if you can yeah. control what you can control yeah. and don't worry about the rest. 
it's calmness as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. a calm to just, yeah. Yeah, relax it's not productive not to be worried about something no. that's um, no. that's already happened, that's for sure. Hey, last night you said something that stuck with me. You said a lot of things that stuck with me. But one, one particular sentence said, your parents were dying as much as you were. Mm. I wrote it down and, and talk to me about the support that you had and, and what you meant by that and, and how that made a difference. Yeah, my, my parents are amazing and I've always been really super close to both of them. Always just, yeah, been incredibly supported by them and, and feel very fortunate in that regard. And they split when I was seven years old, so I have to have two fantastic families and, and it was yeah, really wonderful to have kind of support on, on two different teams or two different sides when I was going through the cancer. Obviously a huge challenge for them as parents. It's not something you ever want to have to watch or see or, or experience your child going through. Their support was really one of the key things which got me through. It was certainly uh, the people around me which got me through a lot of the time. And I think that them in conjunction with my some of my friends and my girlfriend and, and largely the nurses and, and medical staff within the hospital, in fact all the team within the hospital were a massive part of, of what supported me through the experience. Yeah, yeah, and that's what you said last night. And, and uh, I guess a follow-up question to that is: is how does someone? What's the best way you can support someone if if they do have cancer? Because there is that stigma, and often you don't know what to do, and you don't know what to say, yeah. and you just kind of do yeah. nothing. Hundred percent. The easiest way to put it into words is to not treat them any differently after the diagnosis than beforehand. And for my friends, that was that was, <laughs> was a good example. It's a good story I, I share about that. And it was about only a week after I was diagnosed. So it was sort of, I was still kind of in the woods a little bit. And I wanted to tell the story last night, but it just wasn't, it wasn't the time or place. Because you, you share it with audiences and it can be a bit hit or miss. This is one of those times that the cancer stigma overrides and, and people don't necessarily feel comfortable having a laugh. But it was a week or so after my diagnosis, still, yeah, a little bit touch and go. And I got a poem from one of my mates. And it was like an 18 year old guy writing a poem to another guy. It's pretty kind of bromantic. But the, and it was a good poem as well. The poem went, um, hold on, pain ends, ignore the sorrows, the errors, regrets made, inspire nations, appreciate life, which is a pretty kind of impressive poem as well. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. And he's like, oh, yeah take the first letter of each word. And, and when you take the first letter of each word, it turns out it's an acrostic poem and it spells hope it's terminal. And for me, that was that was exactly what I wanted. It was exactly what I needed was the knowledge that my friends were not kind of being different with me about it. And and the only way that a, a bunch of teenage guys can be normal, I think, is, is giving each other a hard time. Yeah. And, you know, I was never safe from a bit of a roasting in, in the group chat about, you know, everything, losing my hair, losing my eyebrows, losing my eyelashes. And that was so important to me because so much in my life had already changed at that time. My whole world had been tipped upside down. Down. And the last thing I needed to lose or to have change was was my friends and, and the people close to me and around me and how they treated me. And that was yeah, well, such a profound learning for me from that experience. Yeah, that's great advice as well. You were actually chatting with Sally. Sally told me this and she was sort of asking, because you live on the Gold Coast now, mm. and she was asking, um, you know, do you ever plan to move back? And you said you don't really think like that anymore. You no. Know? And uh, that was, I'm quite curious to explore that. <laughs> um, yeah, how far ahead do I think? Not very. I more recently, particularly in the last year or so, the, the thinking has become longer term. I think that's probably just a natural progression or shift or transition from being a teenager or someone in the early twenties to progressing yeah further through their twenties. And I guess what I've learned is when you make plans for five or ten years they're far from guaranteed and certainly within my five-year period of, of remission until my announcement is being cured five years after that date of remission, I'd, I always promised myself I wouldn't make plans uh, within that period of time, not because I'm superstitious, but because, you know, lest I'd be robbed of them. Um, I think it would hurt a lot more if I'd planned all these things that I wanted to do and to have them taken away. So I don't plan and I, and I, I won't be making any big plans for the next year year or, or yeah. 15 so what, months. What is it, sort of December next year, is it? It's sort of uh, January, January 2021. Yeah. I'll be um, announced years. as cured, five yeah. years, which will be 
We'll have a big party. I've started planning the party already, <laughs> so you know it's a big party when you've been planning it for two years. Yeah. But even then, it's funny because I know people that have been announced and as as cured after five years and then relapsed and then died. So that that sensation of being kept on your toes is never going to go away, and I'm really grateful for that because that sense of lack of safety, I suppose, is something which really inspires me to live life the way that I do. The risk of a relapse has never been a positive thing for me because it's inspired me to go out and, and make the most of every day, every opportunity that I have in the event that should I die, that I would not die with any regrets. I would not die knowing that I'd done things I didn't want to do or not done things that I did want to do. And that's held me in really good stead for the past three and a half years. And I will yeah, hopefully hold on to that forever. It's a great way to live. I, mean, I think any, everyone should live like that, right? Like of course, like of course. No one's guaranteed, you know, the next 24 hours, let alone exactly. the next five and years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to believe in a sense. And, and even for me, it's easy to get complacent even after everything I've experienced and been through. But when you can truly embrace that and, and believe it and live life that way, it's a pretty powerful thing. Totally. Gratitude seems to be a common theme for you. You know, you've said it a number of times already. Is there a particular way you practice that or do anything or that, that yeah. sort of helps you be grateful? I mean, for me, for example, every Monday for the last four years, I sit down and I write all the things that um, in the last week, and I call them celebrations, but all things that have gone well or that I'm happy with or that I did. or I That's awesome. Off or, that's cool. And for me, that's just a practice. Yeah. And I get into it and it happens every Monday and sometimes I do it with Sally and sometimes I do it with myself. And yeah. it's everything from, I don't know, my daughter did something or I got an ice yeah. cream, all the stuff I love. And um, I just think the more you focus on good things and what happens. So do you have any practice like that or is that just a life philosophy? Um, I don't have a practice like that. It's definitely a philosophy. It might lead to more micro habits. So yeah, when I wake up every day, I, I open my eyes and I realize that I'm not, you know, in a box in the ground and I'm not in another hospital bed and I physically smile to myself a lot of the time. And if you can start your day with that outlook of, you know, I'm just lucky to be alive. There's, there's so little that can go wrong for you in that day. But as far as, yeah, mindset, I think that it really comes from just slowing down, living things day by day. And Often in the past with five or 10 year plans, that's always where I was. I was always somewhere in the future. Um, I was always looking ahead. And I think now living living day to day more and, and focusing on the now really allows you to pick up every little bit of good within the day, find every single thing which goes right. And, and often otherwise, if you're looking too far ahead, it just gets glossed over. Yeah. And I think that's been a big part of my gratitude has just been just focusing a lot shorter term than I had in the past. Yeah, you can't enjoy the future either. No, exactly. You know, it's quite ironic, isn't it? You, can't, you, you get know. there and, and then it's the present <laughs> and you've missed it again. Yeah, and yeah, because you're worried about the next. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then all of a sudden you're, you're done and yeah. you're like, gosh, I spent my whole life worrying about what's happening yeah, next week. exactly. I think I've, I just remembered it now, actually. I remember you, you saying, well, it was an earlier speech or maybe I read it about you and you said, you know, I was as a young person I was you know, always dying for the weekend and yeah. I was dying for the holidays yeah. and I was dying for Christmas and then one day I was dying. Yeah, 100%. And, and I guess that's the fewest words that you can put the concept into and it, it, it's true. I was always, like I said, dying for the weekend, dying for the school holidays and, and dying for something that was ahead until I was dying in Christchurch Hospital and certainly taught me the value of making the most of it while you have the opportunity to because, and unfortunately it, it is such a cliche, but it's only a cliche because it's true and that every day is, is far from a given and, and we're just incredibly lucky to have the opportunities out in front of us. Yeah, that's amazing. I want to finish on fear, I guess, and, and you sort of closed with that last night and I quite liked that. And you said that most people's decisions are dictated by fear and that cancer ridded you of fear. Mm. Can you explain that? Because I love that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Particularly three different types of fears, which I, I talked about last night. And they're fears which I, I guess losing them has been, it's almost the defining factor of me now, just about. It certainly makes up a large portion of my personality or it leads to actions which make me who I am. And first fear, which I really, I touched on last night and I, I talk to people often about is the fear of other people's opinions. I mean, it's natural to be insecure or to be sensitive around yourself. And 
I was certainly a lot like that in the past, and I think all teenagers are really, but as as a kid student at my high school, I was very desperate to be liked by everyone. I feel in retrospect like that I often folded in situations or, or made myself less in order to avoid being negatively viewed by someone just because I hated the concept of being disliked or, or feared other people's opinions largely. And since going through the cancer, I don't I don't really have that fear anymore. I don't really care what other people think of me, which is it's almost a brash statement to make, but it's got to be tempered with an understanding that I'm a very big believer in having a good core group of people around you to keep you humble and to keep you grounded and to uh, make sure that you stay true to your values and who you are and stay as a good person really. And I think as long as you have that and as long as you've got a good strong set of morals which guide you, then, then there is really no need to be afraid of other people's opinions. So that was, it was the first fear that I talked about. The other fear which I talked about, or the second one I talked about was the fear of of the small things in life, really, sweating the small stuff, which is something which we're all guilty of at, at some points because it's an incredibly easy thing to do. And I was a worrier in the past as well. At high school, I worried about anything which had a, a decent drop of worry in it. I would, I would wring out and consume, and that could be sports, exams, social, all, all different facets of life. I just I worried about stuff. Going through the cancer, I mean, almost predictably, I suppose, certainly reduced the amount which I worry about the small things in life. And really, it's almost like it's it's made that aspect of my mind defunct. It's like I'm faulty now. I, I just it doesn't register on the radar the, these smaller things, which, as I often note, is incredibly kind of freeing and liberating and fantastic and and a real pain in the ass for people around me because they kind of commiserate together on on their their worries or difficulties of small things like you know flat tire or a broken phone screen and I just don't feel it. I don't really feel, yeah, worry about things which maybe I even should feel worry about. But at the end of the day, it sort of boils down to me that if it's not life or death, it's not that bad really. And and everything on this side of death is manageable and it might be uncomfortable, it might be difficult, it might be painful, but as long as it's on the side of death, it is manageable and, and there is a way through it. And the final form of fear I talked about was the fear of the future or of the unknown, which is definitely another fear which I always had. I think that's pretty palpable within high schools as well. It's just that time of life. But for adults as well, and midlife crisis is really just the fear of the future, isn't it? It's something which is ever-present throughout life. And so I guess what's changed in me since my experience and what helps me reconcile that is the understanding that you know, I've been through some incredibly difficult times, but I've got out the other side of them. And it's the same for everyone. Everyone has something coming towards them, which is going to be unfathomably painful and difficult and will be so, so hard to get through. And that's what psychologists refer to as inevitable adversity. It's just the concept that things are going to go wrong. But what will really hold you in good stead, and, and that is your resilience. It's basically your ability to just bounce back and recover from the things which uh, can and will go wrong in your life. And how good of a life you have is dictated far more by that skill of happiness, that resilience, than it is by how much money you have or don't have or how good or poor your, your health is. And so I really encourage people to invest in that that skill of happiness because it will be the biggest thing which defines how good of a life they have, not what happens to them. Yeah, totally. You said happiness isn't a product of success last night. No, it's not. It's just not at all. It's, it's a skill and it's incredibly easy to create. It really just is how good you are at bouncing back. It's your bounce back ability. Yeah. I talked to Dr. Lucy Hone. She's a positive psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And she said one of the most important things that people need to understand is that adversity and challenges are a part of life and you can expect they're going to come. Mm-hmm. I mean, not expecting it, but understanding it that they're coming is probably yeah. a really powerful way to be. And yeah, happiness is a skill. I haven't heard that before, but that's a. Um, no, it, it is. And, and like you said, things, I mean, you don't know what's going to happen in the future, but you know that there are going to be some things which are really unfathomably shit, and there's also going to be some stuff which is good, and that's all that you really need to know. You know that regardless of what's coming, you're going to be able to cope with it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I guess you finished last night 
with a challenge to everyone, which was sort of, you know, to live life on behalf of those that can't, mm. you know, and I quite like that. Do you maybe sort of want to explain that concept a little bit? Yeah, I, I guess as I touched on before, I was very lucky to walk out of that ward and there were a lot of people in there who, who didn't, a lot of people who um, who were wheeled out of that place. And leaving there and doing so healthy and alive and going back into a, a normal life for me at least comes with a sense of responsibility to go out and to live life on behalf of those who aren't able to do so any longer and these are people who I, I know and, and knew who now are not able to go out and, and complete the dreams which they had to go and visit the places they wanted to go to take up sports or instruments or or go out and you know find love and get married and have kids and, and live a life and their dreams are just as, as tangible and real and as big as ours and and they don't get to do that and, and i think i mean that is the tragedy the, the tragedy isn't the loss of life and the tragedy is the loss of opportunity and as a result of that i i certainly carry a burden on on my shoulders to go out and, and do as much as i can for them i mean how bloody selfish would it be to be one of the people that gets to walk out of that place and then to not go and make the most of the opportunity that you've got it would just be be out of bullshit really so and it's not just me that really carries that responsibility either, I don't think. I think it's a, a societal thing. Uh, I think that as a society we have a responsibility to go out and live life for those who can't. And there's a story which takes me back to that mindset or, or which really reminds me of it. I was, as a result of my, my treatment, I suffered a condition called peripheral neuropathy, which is nerve damage in my legs. The chemotherapy works by attacking things which grow inside the body, like like tumours, but it attacks everything, which is why your hair falls out. And, and in my case, the chemotherapy also attacked my nerves and stripped the lining of my nerves. And as a result, the, the signals weren't getting from my brain through to my legs much like if you broke your back or severed your spinal column. And so because of that, my legs didn't work and I spent a significant portion of time in a wheelchair or on two crutches. I spent about three months at the Burwood Spinal Unit learning to walk again. And during that time, my mum was driving me to one of my appointments there at the physio. Obviously, I couldn't drive myself. And on the way there, we, we drove past a basketball court and there were just some guys just sort of playing around and, and shooting some hoops and just enjoying themselves and, and I've never been any good at basketball I never liked basketball I'm five foot seven so of course I don't like basketball but I drove past and I looked out the window at them and I just thought to myself like these guys have no idea how fortunately I just to be able to go and, and throw a basketball around at the courts. And in that moment, I just wished, you know, I could just wish I could go and, and just jump around with some mates and just throw a basketball around. And I mean, that's the kind of mindset that I try and carry. Now, everything I do, I just feel so incredibly lucky to be able to do it. And that's everything from walking from the car into your office here today or going to see my family and, and not having to struggle up the stairs anymore. And that's just the stuff which has come from the nerve damage in my legs, let alone the ability I have to go out and live a normal life now that I don't have to go to hospital for treatment every day. I'm not stuck in hospital overnight. The excitement I have to just, you know, be able to go home at the end of the day and, and spend time with my, my family, have dinner with my family and then go to bed with my girlfriend is, these are all things which I, which were once upon a time taken away from me and the gratitude I have for them now is, <laughs> exhausting at times yeah. even so it's, it's overwhelming yeah but an incredible way to look at life and isn't it funny how sometimes it takes the the either the loss or the threat of a loss of something to actually appreciate it oh absolutely you know, it's, a, it's, absolutely. A, it's a flaw in human nature it is. I think it really is you know I think the happiest people are the people that appreciate what they've got while they've still got it yeah absolutely which is that's the way we should probably try and live our lives that's the secret to it I think yeah Um. what next <laughs> um Told I mean, you don't plan too far, too far yeah, <laughs> I'm not meaning what now, but, you know, like do you sort of, you know, I know you don't think too much, but, you know, at the moment, obviously the speaking thing's going well. Yeah. You're, you're traveling yeah. around doing a bit of speaking. And the and speaking stuff is just bliss, really. It is. It could not be any better. 
I have the opportunity to go meet some really cool people, to share my story, to hopefully positively impact people and, and, and change their lives through that. And doing so is just, yeah, such a great honor. And, and through that, I also get to have a lot of free time and, and make a, make a small living to support myself at the, the stage of my life and to travel around and, and see some of the country and see some of Australia and, and see some of the world as well. So it's been a real blessing. And in that, that same sense, I feel like it would almost be uh, selfish to pass up the opportunity to try and help other people. And I know for a fact now at times I, I wondered whether I was flattering myself, but I know now for a fact that, that I have positively impacted people through meeting them and sharing my story with them. And I think to have the opportunity to do so and to turn it down would be well, would be nothing short of selfish, really. Yeah, no, I agree, man. I, after hearing your story last night and you know, the conversation we've had now, I've no doubt that the, your your impact is far wider than, than you can probably imagine. Yeah. Your book as well, like where can people find that? Um, I don't know. It's well, been a few years since it came out, so out go, and, go and have a look at some of the bookshops around the mall. I'm sure it'll be floating around somewhere. It's on online and stuff as well. But, yeah, I think most bookstores should, should still have it yeah. or – yeah, on online, definitely they'll be around. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd be an author? No, I didn't. I mean, that was just the weirdest experience. You probably never thought you'd be a speaker either. No, I didn't know it was a job. I, <laughs> I didn't even – it's just – it's been the weirdest experience. The book was incredibly humbling because that was the moment where I sort of went from thinking, you know, maybe I'm kind of – harping on about something which people don't really want to hear about to the reception of the book was, I have to say, humbling again because there's just no other word for it. And it, it sat at number one bestseller for two months. And just to know that people were appreciating it and hopefully that it was reaching so many people and helping them in some way was just the, the most incredible feeling and such an honour to be able to try and help people through that. And I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, I'd say your speaking does exactly the same as well. Mate, I really, really, really appreciate your time. It's, no, um, I really appreciate it. It's, it's been a cool opportunity to come and have a chat and, and it's nice to just, yeah, slow down and, and reflect on it as well. It helps keep it fresh in my mind as, as much as, as anything else. Yeah, I can imagine, mate. Well, I think um, it's no doubt your, your story is inspirational. If someone wants to see you speak anyway, is there a different list of dates or anything? Up yeah, or? Um, I, don't, I don't usually speak publicly for events. I do a lot of high schools and I do a lot of corporates. Mm -hmm. So if, if people are interested in me speaking for companies or, or fundraising events or done all kinds of stuff and that's I mean I've had some cool experiences and, and cool stories along the last few years with different opportunities I've had to speak but just reach out via email it would be be fantastic to be in touch and, and we can take it from there yeah and your website is just jakebailey.co.nz yeah 100% yeah wonderful mate I appreciate you so much I know there's thousands of other people out there that feel exactly the same so you've got a, a pretty remarkable insight into life and a perspective that I think if many more of us adopted there'd be happier humans around that's for sure I appreciate your time I wish you all the best and and your health. I look forward to uh, a party, maybe not an invite, but I look forward to hearing <laughs> about there, a mate. party in uh, oh. in 2021. I'm trying to pack it up with as many people as I can, so you'll be there. Don't worry. <laughs> You're a good man, Jake. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And there it is, Mr. Jake Bailey. What a fantastic human being he is a privilege to chat to um, I know he's a busy guy so I really appreciate him making the time as well as I appreciate you for having a listen to the podcast honestly um, I really love having these conversations I, I've, I've been a bit slack recording the podcast if I'm perfectly honest but I love it when I get to do it um, I'm looking forward to getting back in and, and recording more of these and um, the fact that people listen to and enjoy them as well is just wonderful if you want to reach out to me anyway you can find me on Facebook or Instagram um, and there's a couple of things you can do if you enjoyed this episode or you got any value out of it in any way um, one you could please share the episode tell someone about it um, send them a link you can share it from whichever platform that you're listening to it on now um, alternatively you can jump onto iTunes and leave a review now this podcast actually costs me money to produce it gets edited and gets um, hosted online that all costs money I cover the cost of this through my uh, public speaking as well no, no, nowhere near the level of Jake but um, I like doing it and I love sharing my story as well so if you or anyone you know or any organisation you know is after a public speaker you can find out all the info online at mattylovell.com other than that thanks so much for checking out the podcast I hugely appreciate every single one of you have a great day see ya bye bye